And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. In 1987, which was 35 years ago now, philosopher Alan Bloom, he published his best-selling book entitled The Closing of the American Mind. Now, early on, about page 25, he says, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, in other words, if it's challenged, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. To them, this proposition that truth is relative is self-evident. It would be like questioning whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you just don't think about. Well, the chief virtue that this relativism seeks to support is tolerance or openness. The main enemy of tolerance is the person who thinks that he has the truth or is right in his views. You can see what that does for us as Christians because we believe we, we have some of the answers. According to them, thinking that you are right only has led to wars, persecutions, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point, says Bloom, is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it's to not think that you are right at all. Now, Bloom, later in the book, he reports his students' reaction to this question, who do you think is evil? Well, they immediately respond, Hitler. They rarely mention Stalin. And Bloom comments, and there it stops. They have no idea of evil. They doubt its existence. Hitler is just another abstraction, an item to fill an empty category. So what is evil? Oh, Hitler. Everybody knows that. Although they live in a world which uh, the most terrible deeds are being performed and they see the brutal crimes in the street, he says they turn aside. Now, I cite Bloom because the worldview of those young people uh, that he observed 35 years ago, it's now very pervasive in our society. And the worldly relativism that minimizes or even eliminates the concept of sin, it's not just out there somewhere in the universities. It has flooded into the church. Popular megachurches thrive by making a church a safe place for everyone where no one will be judged and where various types of immorality are simply relabeled as personal preferences. The gospel, it gets retooled as a way that Jesus can help you succeed and reach your personal goals. If you want your church to grow, don't mention sin. Rather, tell people how much God loves them because they're so lovable. <laughs> Build their self-esteem. But never suggest that they are sinners. Here's the problem with that. If we're not sinners, then we don't need a Savior who died to bear the penalty of our sin. More than a century ago, Charles Spurgeon, he lamented, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, the biblical doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial to an understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. Whatever we may think, we cannot be right and clear about the way of salvation unless we are right and clear about sin. End quote. 
And since Romans 7 is one of the most penetrating analyses of sin in all of Scripture, we need to understand Paul's thought here. Now, in our text, Paul defends the integrity and the righteousness of God's law against critics. They argued that Paul's teaching implied that law is sin. And he, 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 he replies, uh, by no means. He exonerates God's law as holy, righteous, and good while showing why he gave the law. God gave his law to convict us of our sin, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would flee to Christ for salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we all need this message today to understand uh, what our sin has done, where it has left us. And Father, if there's anybody in here that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning that they can see that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, speak through this passage this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our innate self-righteousness is so entrenched that until the law strips us of it and convicts us of our sin, we will not cast ourselves totally upon Christ. It just won't happen. Our culture, it adds to this by telling us that we're not sinners. We're not worms, for goodness sakes. We're pretty good folks. Now, we may want to bring Jesus into our, uh, you know, into our lives as a useful coach or a helper in our self-improvement program. Surely we can learn something from Him. But to trust Him as our Savior... We have to see the depth of our sin as God's law exposes it for what it is. And that's what Paul describes here. Paul's main concern in this chapter is not to share his personal experience, although I do think it reflects that, but rather to exonerate God's law from any hint of evil. Now, as I, as I understand it, he uses his own experience to show how the law functions to bring Conviction of sin, but also to show us how powerless it is to deliver us from its grip. Rather, it drives us to Christ, who alone has the power to save. It drives us to the indwelling Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to actually overcome sin. So let's, let's try to work through, through these verses, three major points here. Number one, the law is not sin, but it does reveal, does reveal our sin. This is verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? Remember, he's answering that question. He knows this goes all the way back to verse 5, which I'll read in a minute. But what shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, he's responding here to the charge that critics would bring in reaction to verse 5. And it's in verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, this is prior to Christ, our sinful passions, comma, aroused by the law, comma, <laughs> were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Remember, the Jews believed that God gave the law to give us life, to make us holy. But Paul claims here that the law actually aroused us to sin, and it results in death. So now he answers their charge, well, is the law sin then? Now, he strongly rejects that thought, may it never be, by no means. And he argues that the law functions to re reveal our sin to us. 
He uses as a personal example the tenth commandment against coveting. Now, he probably uses the tenth commandment because it's the only command that explicitly condemns evil on the heart level. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5? He pointed out that the commands against murder and adultery, and by implication, all the commands, they go much deeper than just the outward action. If you're angry at your brother, you have violated the command against murder. If you lust in your heart over a woman, you have committed adultery in God's sight. But the command against coveting, it explicitly goes right to the heart. Coveting concerns your heart's desires, whether you ever act on them or not. This takes place within. Now, when Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, he doesn't mean that he or others do not, sin, do not know sin at all apart from the law. He already said back in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that the Gentiles who do not have the law, talking about the law of Moses, the Gentiles don't have that, but they have the work of the law written on their hearts. He also tells us that people sinned from Adam until Moses, even though they did not have the written law. What Paul means is that, that the law, especially that tenth commandment, focusing on those inward desires, it nailed him so that he came to know sin as sin against God. Before his conversion, outwardly, Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee. He thought that all of his deeds commended him to God. With regard to the law, you'll remember in Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, he saw himself as blameless. But when the Holy Spirit brought home to his conscience that tenth commandment about coveting, Paul realized that he had violated God's law. At that point, he came to know sin. The commandment made it explicit. Paul, you are a sinner. Now, like Paul before his conversion, most people think that they are basically good. Sure, they know they have their faults. Who doesn't? They're not perfect, but they're good. They excuse even their bad sins, just as Paul excused his, his violent persecution of the church. After all, it was justified because it was for a good cause. So, guys, they excuse a little bit of pornography because everybody does it. They excuse their violent temper because that person had it coming. People excuse all manner of sin and still think of themselves as basically good people because they have not come face to face with God's law, especially the law as it confronts our evil desires. At the heart of coveting is the enthronement of self as Lord. Now Spurgeon compares the sinner who thinks that he is basically good but will not look at God's law. He compares him to a man who thinks he is rich and lives in a lavish manner but refuses to look at his books. The guy lives in a style that he can't afford. But does he ever get out the accounts and take stock of his real condition? No, that's boring and, and maybe scary. Well, we all know where that's going to end up. This man's going to go bankrupt. In the same way, Spurgeon says, we may convince ourselves that we are right with God by brushing over our faults as really no big deal. We live as if we're good people, as if all is well. But if we don't examine our true condition in light of God's law, we're headed for eternal bankruptcy. The law reveals our sin. 
Well, number two, the law provokes sinners to sin. Did you hear that? The law provokes sinners to sin. This is verse 8. Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul here personifies sin as an active force or a power. Uh, and he uses that law, uh, it, sin uses that law to provoke us to commit acts of sin. He repeats that same phrase again in verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. That word opportunity, it was used for a military base of operations from which the army launched its campaigns. So sin takes God's holy commandments and uses them to tempt us to violate those commandments. It stirs up the rebel in us and makes us want to assert our right to do as we please. James Boyce tells a story from when he was in the sixth grade. The school principal came into his room and said they'd heard that some students had brought some fire, uh, fireworks, uh, firecrackers to school. He went on to warn about the dangers of firecrackers, and he told them that anyone caught with firecrackers would be expelled. Well, Boyce, he didn't own any firecrackers. He hadn't even thought about firecrackers. But when you start thinking about firecrackers, it's an intriguing, uh, you know, thought. He then remembered that one of his friends had some firecrackers. So at lunch, he and another boy went to this friend's house and got a firecracker and came back to school. They intended to go into the cloakroom and planned to light it and then pinch it out before it exploded. They were, they were going to play with it, in other words. But the, 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 the lit fuse, it burned the fingers of the boy who was holding it. He dropped it, and it exploded with a horrific bang. Uh, it echoed in that old building with its high ceilings, its marble floors, floors, and its plaster walls. Before the boys could stagger out of the cloakroom, have you ever been in a closed space when a, when a firework goes off or something? It's kind of, it'll shake you up. Well, before they got out of the, 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 the cloakroom cloak, cloak there, the principal was out of, out of his office down the hall and was waiting right there to greet him. As Boyce later sat in the principal's office with his parents, now, the principal, he says, the principal kept saying over and over, I had just told them not to bring any firecrackers to school. I just can't believe it. I just told them over and over again. But you know what? That's how sin operates in the hearts of rebels. It takes God's good and right commandments, and it actually entices us to violate them. Our sin nature springboards off of the commandment to provoke us to sin. When a person is confronted by God's law, the forbidden thing, whatever it is, becomes all the more attractive, not so much for its own sake as for its furnishing a channel for the assertion of self-will. The law gives our rebellious heart a means of manifesting that rebellion. What does Paul mean when he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead? Since the fall, everyone is born in sin and is prone to sin. 
Before the flood, before God gave the law to Moses, the world was ever so sinful. Listen to Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That, that's a statement now. So how can Paul say that apart from the law, sin lies dead? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says he must have meant sin was comparatively dead. As far as his awareness was concerned, it was dead. In other words, before God brought the law to bear on Paul's conscience, as far as he knew, he wasn't in sin. He saw himself as a good person. The law had not yet revived the sin that lay dormant in his heart. Apart from the law, sin seems to be dead as far as the sinner is concerned. They don't even know they're sinning. Paul traces the process one step further, number three. The law, through our failures to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. This is verses 9 through 11. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, I'll deal with a deceptive aspect of sin, Lord willing, next in our, in our next study. What does Paul mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? This is the same apostle who said that before salvation, we are all dead in our sins. So how could he once be alive? And when was Paul ever apart from the law? We know that he was raised from his youth up in the strictest traditions of Judaism. And when did sin kill him? Well, as with every verse in this text, there are quite a few opinions. Some say that verse 9 refers to Adam, since he is the only one of whom it rightly could be said that he was once alive apart from the law. Others take it to refer to Israel before the law was given. But most likely, I think Paul is speaking in a relative sense about his own perception of himself. Once he thought that he was alive and doing quite well in God's sight. He saw himself as blameless with regard to the righteousness of the law. Kind of like the Pharisee in Jesus' story in Luke 18, Paul would have prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. In that sense, Paul saw himself as once alive apart from the law. He was apart from the law in the sense that it had not yet bore down on his conscience to convict him on the heart level. But then, Paul says, the commandment came, you shall not covet, this commandment he's talking about here. He had memorized that commandment as a child. He had recited it many times before, but the Holy Spirit had not nailed him with it. How many of you have ever read a verse many, many times, but just kind of skip right over it and keep going? It didn't say anything to you. But one day, you read it for the 50th time, and blam, it knocks you right between the eyes. You see it like you have never seen it before. That commandment then came to you. 
Well, then what happens? Paul says, sin became alive and I died. Now, at first, Paul thought that he was alive and that his sin was dead. But then God's law hit him. And he suddenly realized that his sin was very much alive and he was actually dead. He saw that he was not right with God as he formerly thought. Rather, he was alienated from God. He was under God's judgment. Now, he had thought that he would get him to heaven because he was a zealous Jew. And beyond that, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he was a notch above the other Jews because he was a Pharisee. But now, he realized that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor of God's church, a violent aggressor, and the chief of sinners. The commandment promised life to all who keep it. But Paul thought that he had been keeping it blamelessly. But then God shot the arrow of the commandment, you shall not covet. It hit Paul right in the heart and it killed him. Spurgeon says, what died in Paul was that which ought never to have lived. It was that great I in Paul. That I that used to say, I thank you, that I am not like other persons. Uh, it's that I that folded its arms in just satisfied security. I'm doing good. That I that bent its knee in prayer, but never bent the heart in penitence. That I died. Spurgeon goes on to show several other respects in which Paul died. He died in that he saw he was condemned to, to die. He now stood guilty before God. He also died in that all of his hopes for his past life died. His good works that he had been relying on, they came crashing down on his head as worthless. He died in that all of his hopes for future, hopes as to the future, it died. He realized that if his salvation depended on the future keeping of the law, he was doomed. His past failure showed that he would be sure to break it again in the future. And he died in that all of his powers seemed to die. Formerly, he thought that he could keep the law uh, just fine by his own strength. But now he saw that every word, thought, deed, and even every desire that did not meet God's holy standard would condemn him. And so all his hope died. He felt condemned. As Spurgeon says elsewhere, the rope was around his neck. Now, here's my question. Can you identify with Paul's experience? Has God's holy law hit home to your conscience so that you died to your self-righteousness? Has the law killed all of your hopes that your good works will get you into heaven? If so, that's a good thing because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners to repentance. When you see God's holy standard and how miserably you have mis violated it time and time again, then you begin to see your need for the Savior. And the b best news ever is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, God gave His law to strip us of all self-righteousness, to convict us of our sin so that we would flee to Christ to save us. That's His design. Make sure that your hope for eternal life is in Christ alone. Let's pray.
Father, we get a, a picture of law that should make sense to us, and often it doesn't. It actually incites us to sin, and the purpose behind that is so that we can see our need for a Savior. God, it drives us to the cross. We are grateful for that. So even now, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, Father, uh, that we would recognize the sin in our lives, that we would be drawn to Christ day after day, moment by moment. Father, as we sin, as we, as we don't perfectly conform to your will, God, forgive us and then draw us close to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're out there this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today can be the day. You think you're, you think you're doing fine. Maybe, maybe God has brought some part of the law to you to understand this morning you can't keep the law and be right with God. Paul tells us earlier, no man is justified by keeping the law. It doesn't happen. Our justification comes by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of God. Have you received that gift? If you haven't, I encourage you to come forward. We'll talk, we'll sit down, we'll go through God's Word, and I'll show you what, what Paul is talking about, uh, this faith and what it means to trust in God. You ask God to forgive you of your sins. We, we've all sinned against Him. And then you trust Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross about 2,000 years ago now. Just to, and, and in doing that, we receive that grace, that mercy. We receive forgiveness of sin. We receive a new life, Paul tells us. I encourage you this morning, don't walk out of here today if you don't know that for certain about your own life. If you're a believer, uh, this is a, just a good chance to remind us that, yes, we do sin. We're going to look in the next few weeks at, at what, what Paul talks about, an ongoing struggle. And, and we, we recognize it our own lives. But again, the, the law, it's a good thing in our lives. It, you know what the law does? It reveals God's will. It reveals God's heart. We are to follow the law. No longer we do it as a means of salvation. That will never work. But now in Christ, having been raised from the dead spiritually, now alive in Christ, we actually follow the law because we want to. We want to uh, be right with God. We want to be right with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the law is still very much a part of our lives. It's just a whole different aspect. Now, if you'd like to join our church, we're just going to sing a song of invitation to give you a chance to respond. You come. We'll fill out a little bit of paperwork, see about getting you started with us here at First Baptist. You guys go ahead and stand. If the Lord is speaking to you this morning, you come and share it with me now. And you guys can be seated. I want to ask the deacons to come on up. We're um, participating in the Lord's Supper uh, today. We're doing something new. It's the first time we've done it. Uh, this is going to cut down a little bit on our passing. You're going to get two cups, okay? The wafer is going to be in the bottom cup and your juice in the top cup. 
All right, so just want to warn you that so you, it doesn't freak you out, okay? Miss Kathy goes, well, why don't we put it the other way since we drink the, well, I mean, we eat the bread first. And she took it and went, oh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> so just know that is coming up. You know, today's uh, sermon is a good introduction for the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're talking about sin. The reason that we partake of the Lord's Supper is so that we remember the price that was paid by Jesus, by our Savior, for our sin. We do it in remembrance of Him. Now, this morning I'm going to be using Mark's uh, version of it in Mark 14. I will tell you that the Lord's Supper is for believers, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, It's, it's not for anybody else. It's for, for us, for those who are in Christ, who have you know, chosen to follow Him and do so daily. That, that's who this is for. One thing I want to warn you about is this, <laughs> Paul talks about it a lot in 1 Corinthians 11. This is not to be taken lightly. This is in remembrance of the price that was paid for our sin. Do not participate this, in this, even as a believer, harboring sin in your heart. Paul says that's not a good idea. He says, for this reason, talking to the church at Corinth, many of you are weak, some are sick, some are asleep. That's Paul's way of saying they have died. They were believers, but they died because they did not honor God in their taking of the Lord's Supper. Okay, don't be a hypocrite. Don't hide sin in your heart and take of the elements, the bread, which is His body, the cup, which is His blood that was shed for you. Come get right with God. Take, take time as we pass this. You take time to go to God and get right with Him and then partake with a clean conscience. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.